Hey everyone, thanks for pressing play on this one. This episode is one I think is very important, and I hope after you're done listening, you'll ask someone else to listen to it too, and talk it over with you. Since I think it's important, I'm going to release it both through Pop Culture Quorum Deo and the Servants and Heralds podcast. It fits right into the Our Hideous Strength content on Servants and Heralds, plus, like I said, I hope a lot of people listen. I'm talking to Lewis Ungett about his book, Return of the Dragon, The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People in Society. To put it frankly, Lewis is on to something very important about the spiritual crisis of our cultural moment as it pertains to mind-altering substances. We've talked about some of this before on previous Pop Culture Quorum Deo episodes, but Lewis does an excellent job of getting the facts on the table and seeing the implications with clear eyes. DMT, demons, human sacrifice, no hyperbole, it's all in here and closer to you and your neighbors than you can imagine. All right, let's get going on my interview with Lewis Ungett. Hey, Lewis Ungett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I cannot wait to talk to you about your book. Uh, am I getting this right? Return of the Dragon? Return of the Dragon, yeah. Subtitled The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Jeff. And are you doing okay today? We we appreciate your time. I am doing great. Yeah, just uh, I'm up here in Michigan, so we've got uh, some nice cold weather that's finally kicked in. We've been having a very nice fall, but the uh, cold weather is um, not excited about that. But other than that, everything's going well. Well, good deal. We uh, we took our, our second son to his first college football game this weekend, and temperatures were in like, you know, they might have made it into the 40s. And so we're dealing with okay. the same, but yeah. I want to get to yeah. Florida when this time of year rolls around. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, Florida, you don't want to be there during the summer, but uh sure is nice during the winter. Yeah. So I came across a tweet of yours not uh, long ago at the time of this recording where you had tweeted about the relationship between psychedelics and abortion. And yeah. um, yep. that's been something kind of in my mental hopper. Uh, and then I guess a mutual friend of ours uh, on social media anyway, Lucas Scott Roberts said, Hey, you should read this guy's book. And I was like, Hey, let's go. And so, um, I am, am kind of catching up to what you're writing in this book. Um, yeah. in fact, I think a lot of the stuff you mentioned in chapter maybe two, I started hearing about ayahuasca on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. I started hearing about Graham Hancock from Joe Rogan's podcast, started yeah. connecting it with, um, you know, the, uh, the, the vice list in the new Testament telling us to stay away from pharmacia started, um, yeah. thinking about ancient pagans like the Oracle of Delphi and how they were entering into mind altered states to, um, commune with the divine or whatever they thought they were doing to receive these oracles. And I've been talking to some friends locally about kind of what that might mean for us. And I came to the conclusion that, as society becomes more secular, it's not like the impulse to seek after the divine goes away. You just push something else up into that vacated space. And I think yeah. you know, for yep. some, it's like civics. But for a lot of people, you're going to have secularists who turn to mind-altering substances. They're going to run in, like Graham uh, Hancock in his band TED Talk, you're going to run into some kind of intelligence and think yeah. it's the guru yep. that's going to guide us to enlightenment when the biblical category would be demon. Um, yes. Yeah. And so yeah, that's, uh, there's a, 
a sociologist named Rodney Stark, and he, he says, in the absence of organized religion, it's not no religion, it's disorganized religion. That that's what replaces mm-hmm. organized religion is disorganized religion. And I, I think we're definitely seeing that going on right now. Yeah, so I, I, you were kind enough to send me a copy of your book, and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy's way down the road uh, putting these things together. And so um, I guess maybe, let me let me start here. Could you sketch out your background for our listeners, like uh, educationally, sure. and then how did you get to the, I'm not sure the right kind of topic we're talking about here, but psychedelic occultism? Yeah. You know. I, I um I, I have a seminary degree, um, and I also have an engineering degree. I also have a business degree. So I've uh, got a, a very eclectic educational background, um, but I also just read very broadly. Um, so I, as an individual, I've always taken it as um, important for me to constantly be reading. So I mm-hmm. try and read a book a week, and I try and read from a diverse areas of background. But yeah, from a formal education standpoint, um, I have uh, a degree in in, uh, theology and a degree in uh, business and a degree in engineering. And I do think for a subject like this, you have to have a diverse background. Mm. Um, So I think that when um, one of the problems that we have in modern society is all our experts are are, are, uh, specialists. They're, They're all focused on one field and they know it very well. But I think by doing that, you miss a lot of stuff. A lot of people don't realize most of the great scientists of ancient days, and I'm in no way, shape, or form putting myself in that category, but most of the great scientists like Newton and Boyle and uh, and Galileo, et cetera, those guys were generalists. They knew right. a lot of different fields. They studied a lot of different things. A lot of people don't realize Isaac Newton um, – was an expert in about five different scientific fields, not just one. So I, I do think it's important to know a lot of different stuff. And, and I think on this particular subject, um, having a background with religion was absolutely in, critical to it. Um, having some knowledge of, of um, the science from that background was absolutely critical. Um, and I do, I spend a lot of time on both those and, and also having philosophical knowledge. I, I spend some time in there in the book and, being able to kind of tie all those different threads together, I think was incredibly important. Sure. It makes sense. And I, before we started recording, I, I kind of described your book to you as a unified theory of the supernatural and the occult. I'm not entirely sure if that's how you would go at it, but um, it, it does collect a wide range of threads and kind of says, look at how these things interrelate. So with that in mind, how yeah. did you, how did this come to be a topic you wanted to write on? Um. So. I have been witnessing um, just the rise of social acceptance of psychedelics um, and just kind of as a social observer, someone that's interested in culture, interested in trends that are going on in society, I've been watching that. And um, it has been increasingly um, shocking how much people have just started to accept the use of marijuana. I live in Michigan. And there's now every billboard in the whole state is advertising marijuana stores. And mm. um, I, I was, you know, lived near the University of Michigan. I was downtown for a football game and um, kind of like those car dealership uh, inflatable things. There was like two or three of those for a marijuana store. And so like just watching that and then um, in parallel to that different psychedelics opening up. Um, and so 
seeing that as a cultural observer, but also seeing some of the same things you're talking about. I actually was a fan of Graham Hancock um, before, you know, any of this topic came up in my mind. Um, I just, I found him to be an interesting writer. He writes about ancient Mesoamerica, which I'm interested in, um, has some interesting alternative historical theories, which I'm interested in. So I was kind of reading him, but one of the things anybody that reads Graham Hancock knows is that he is into these psychedelic drugs. And as you mentioned, into ayahuasca and DMT in particular, um, and what he has to say about those are incredibly intriguing where you, his opinion is, is that he's seen real things when he has ayahuasca. Um, if your audience isn't familiar, ayahuasca is a drug that the Inca ancient Inca used, um, and the ancient Inca, um, uh, developed it out of it. It's a, a true technology where it has to be treated a number of different ways. It's a a mix of tree bark and, and a variety of other plants, um, but also processed a certain way through cooking, et cetera. So it's kind of, when you get your picture of like a witch's brew, that's what it is. It's a mix of things that they created. And ayahuasca is probably the strongest psychedelic there is, uh, where when people go on an ayahuasca, they call it a journey, um, they see entities that um, they interact with, they, they work with. And then when they come down from the high, this is a, one of the things that like prompted me to write this book, they come down from the high and even atheists often cease to be atheists. One of the studies I cite from Johns Hopkins University um, did, a, did a study of, of DMT, which is the synthesized version of ayahuasca um, on a bunch of people, including some atheists. And what they found was the majority of the atheists ceased to be atheists after they had done DMT. So they go there, they see these entities, they come back and they say, no, those entities were real. And that's what Graham Hancock says. He says, well, that's, they're real. Whatever we're seeing there is real stuff. And so for me as a Christian, I'm like, okay, well, if they're real, what are they? Right? Mm -hmm. Like that was the mm -hmm. question that came to my mind. And what you had mentioned about the Bible, um, that's one of the things. So I have a seminary degree, um, studied the Queen Greek of the, of the New Testament. And I never really put two and two together until I, until I started studying this. And I realized that the word often will look at the Bible, and, and I've done this before, you know, um, people will ask me, hey, what does the Bible say about drugs? So I, I type that into Google, what does the Bible say about drugs? And it says almost nothing. You know, you take an English translation, and there's some references to not drinking too much wine. Um, and, you know, so if, if you just take an English translation of the Bible, you say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about drugs. It says a little bit about not getting too drunk. And therefore, maybe we should be careful with alcohol. But um, is, is marijuana OK? Is, is LSD OK? Is magic mushrooms OK? But what clicked for me, um, in part because of my um, study of the, the ancient languages, is the word pharmakai or pharmakia um, is the Koine Greek of the New Testament. That's the word that typically gets translated witchcraft. So when you read the Bible and, and it warns against the use of witchcraft, um, and it speaks um, against, you know, for example, in Revelation chapter 22, 15, it says those that practice witchcraft um, will be cast out of the kingdom on the day of judgment. Um, well, the word witchcraft there is pharmakia, right? And that word, when you look it up in a Greek lexicon, that word literally means using drugs for spiritual or ritual purposes. And you say, okay, well, why did they translate it witchcraft? And the answer is, that in the ancient world, witchcraft and the use of drugs for ritual purposes were tied together. So when, when we use the word often like witch doctor or medicine man, 
or um, we'll use the word shaman. All those are words for guys that, you know, we, we have those images from old movies in our heads of guys that dress kind of crazy and act kind of weird. Um, they almost always would be preparing some kind of brew, almost always would have some sort of psychedelic drug, almost always would have some mind altering drug that would allow them to see into the spirit world, to get some answers, to answer questions about the future, answer questions about how to heal people, answer questions about who would win the war. Um, so that mixing together of drugs and witchcraft is why in the English translation, we take that word and we translate it to witchcraft, but it's by doing that. And all translations are allied to some degree because all translations require us to make interpretive decisions. But by going back to the original language, we learn, no, it's warning against a particular type of witchcraft, which is the use of drugs for spiritual purposes. And when I realized that, I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to write a book on this. So that's kind of like the foundation of how I started um, to write this book. Well, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad you did. I mean, there's a bunch there that I kind of want to pull apart and look at. I know that um, some of this stuff wasn't our radar again until Rogan, Graham, Hancock, but I went at it the same way you did. I was listening to Hancock talk about these ancient civilizations that are being discovered as the rainforest is being, uh, you know, basically suffering deforestation. He's saying, no, no, there's better, you know, there's more advanced civilizations than we ever thought. I'm thinking Tower mm -hmm. of Babel, things like that, sure. you know, ziggurat yep. culture. Uh, and then yeah. he and Rogan turn into full-time evangelists for ayahuasca. And you hear, yeah. Yeah. you know, Mike Tyson says it changed his life and Machine Gun Kelly yeah. and... Uh, Megan Fox are going to use it, and you start realizing, uh, you know, if it if it's on Joe Rogan, I guess in some sense it's kind of mm -hmm. mainstream. But there is a real drug culture there where people are engaging this stuff intentionally uh, at pretty high levels of society, and it's not really a mainstream conversation. Um, yeah, do you think that's still is that the case? Because the idea of psychotropics is still a sort of uh, taboo in our society. It doesn't that seems so uh, out of fashion and, and outdated, but there's some reason that this isn't on your nightly news all the time, right? Yeah, I think there's a historical societal taboo around it, right? And I think that, so just, you know, you go back and when I was a kid, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, just 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was, um, you know, it was companies would do drug tests. Mm -hmm. um, there was a cultural taboo that you weren't supposed to do it. It was illegal in every single state. Um, it was considered something that would destroy your brain. There was anti-drug commercials done by the government, et cetera. So as a society, just a few years ago, this was absolutely something that was viewed almost as a negative, uh, a universal negative. Um, and it's, I think that t taboo still is in existence a little bit. And that's probably why you don't see it from say the nightly news or whatever. Um, but I do think it's quickly that losing that taboo. And I think it's quickly starting to become something that um, is just generally accepted by people. And in my mind, that's terrifying. Um, and, and we can talk about why. I, like, I, I don't, it, it's, you know, spoiler alert on my book is that I ultimately judge that this is, we're opening Pandora's box here um, as we, if as a society, we, we start to um, normalize and um, accept these drugs as something that uh, everybody should do. As as you mentioned, you know that's something that a, a Joe Rogan says should should happen. Uh, a Graham Hancock says should happen. Um, that everybody should do ayahuasca. Everybody should do um, 
magic mushrooms, you know, uh, and, and everybody should try these. They, they'll make you a better person. That's the kind of language they use. And um, I think it's a, a terrifying development. Yeah, well, again, this is stuff I'm catching up to. But a few years ago, my eyes were opened a bit by there's a prominent, mm. I guess, prominent pastor out there named Doug Wilson, mm. who wrote a book called Devoured by Cannabis. And when he was working his way up to the release of that book, he said, you know, we're we're seeing more mass shootings than we've ever seen in history. Uh, almost yeah. exclusively, these are young men. And he said, the question you're never uh, allowed to ask or find out the answer to is, what uh, you know, what what kind of prescription mind altering substances are they currently on prescription for, and how much yep. weed are they smoking every day? You're just not allowed to yep. know that, and yet we yep. all know these yep. things powerfully affect the brain. Um, sure, yep. it got me it, thinking about that as a pastoral issue and a concern for basically loving my neighbor. Yes, yeah, um, I know a psychiatrist, and she says that when she deals with people that have bipolar or um, schizophrenia. She said that almost 100% of them were very heavy marijuana users when they were younger. Um, and, you know, there's been some studies out on that. And, you know, people can test the data. And it's, it's as with all health issues, it's, it's hard to determine a single root cause behind something. But um, it, it, in my mind, it's, it, there's a definite connection there. And it's uh, frightening. Um, now, what I kind of discuss in my book and what I in my book is that it's it, we need to go beyond just the natural looking at things right you could take a kind of a very naturalistic almost atheistic view and say you know marijuana might modify your brain and therefore cause psychosis and cause violence or whatever or you could say say that for for mushrooms or you could say that for ayahuasca or whatever um what i posit in my book is that the claims of like a graham hancock um the claims of other scientists, uh, for example, Rick Strassman or um, social commentators like Terrence McKenna, um, the claims that these spirits and entities they see while on the psychedelics, they claim those are not imaginary, that mm-hmm. those are not just hallucinations, those are not just in their head, that they are real entities. Um, and kind of what I take in my book is I start to lay down what I believe is good scientific, logical, philosophical, and theological arguments that we need to consider that they are real entities, that they re- really are spiritual beings of some sort. And if that's the case, um, you know, in, in modern society, we, we um, use the word in modern day America, we say he's a spiritual person. We almost always think that's a good thing, right? Sure. Somebody says they're spiritual, we say that's a good thing. Um, but in, in older societies, they would have said what spirit, you know, sure. because there was good spirits and bad spirits. And for anybody that knows Christian theology, in Christian theology, there's good spirits and bad spirits. There's demons and there's angels and there's there's God and there's there's the devil, right? And so we should ask that question when people are doing drugs and they're having these spiritual experiences. Are they good spirits or bad spirits? Are they good spiritual experiences, bad spiritual experiences? And um, kind of what I posit in my book, especially on the chapter that talks about what the Bible has to say about these things, I argue we have to seriously take into account that the use of drugs for spiritual purposes is over and over condemned in the Bible. And if if we're using a process of experiencing spiritual things that is condemned in the Bible, the spirits we're interacting with are probably not good spirits, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Like it, it just doing putting two and two together. 
you know, it, it, if you're using an illicit way to experience the spiritual world, it's probably not the good things that you're going there to experience. Right, right. So as a historic Christian, I know that God has made himself available to be known through Christ and his word. Yeah. Anything that's yeah. presenting himself, itself to be known as not, you know, through an alternative channel isn't playing for the good guys, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. So I want to get into a little bit. I don't want to step all over your book, but I kind of want to get into some of that um, and maybe throwing back to what you said earlier. My experience of the American church is that we kind of treat um, mind-altering substances like materialists. You know, we we don't yeah. get drunk because you would lose self-control. You might do something or say something that you would regret or is inconsistent with a Christian. But again, as you've already mentioned, the, the biblical um, data suggests far more. Um, are you familiar? He, he's a online personality, but he's a cartoonist. Um, his name is Owen Cyclops. Does that name ring a bell? I am not. No, I'm not <clears throat> familiar with Owen Cyclops. So I'll have to, have to look him up. Well, you'll have to look him up. He's, I did an interview with him not too long ago. Uh, Owen is an interesting case. He was a pagan, you know, didn't probably was a spiritual person, but became convinced the occult had real power. And when okay. he became convinced the occult had real power, he started asking, well, what framework does this fit into? And it, that kind of backdoored him into Christianity. But as he's yeah. doing this, he's an ayahuasca user. And so I interviewed him, the episodes available in the archives, but he talks about how he went to, you know, he would see the uh, clockwork, uh, what's the terminology, the clockwork monkeys or um, oh, the uh, machine elves. The machine elves. The term for, yeah, yeah. yeah, he would see yeah. that. He would see the geometric patterns. He was entirely convinced, like Graham Hancock, that these things are real. So let me ask you this. if I guess your book is doing this more broadly, but as an elevator pitch, you run into someone who's a Christian. They believe in the, you know, the mm-hmm. biblical cosmology, but they're sort of thinking about um, this topic as a functioning materialist, the, the way we talked about earlier. What do you tell them about what can be known about ayahuasca use that would kind of get them thinking, oh, actually, this guy's got a point. This is maybe something I should consider as real. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And and I have had exact that exact conversation. I actually had it yesterday via uh, messages on, on Twitter with a Christian that was considering taking uh, psychedelics. And that's, that's um, something that my answer to that question would be um, – in the case of psychedelics, um, what is extremely interesting, and this is especially true with ayahuasca and DMT, is how the reaction of atheists to taking these drugs. Where if if we say, okay, I've got an atheistic perspective on this, and I'm, you know, it modifies your brain, your brain sees some crazy stuff, and then you come back down, and maybe it has good effects, maybe it has some bad effects, but it's ultimately all inside your head. Um, you would think that atheists that took ayahuasca would hold to that as much as anybody else, right? That, that they'd come back down and they'd be like, wow, that was a weird brain phenomenon I had, but uh, you know, that was, it was all in my head. Um, that doesn't happen. Atheists come down and a majority of atheists cease to be atheists. And even atheists that, that remain atheists, many of them still believe that the entities that they saw while in, on the ayahuasca journey, they believe were real entities. Um, so they'll come back down and they'll say that was all real. Those were real beings. Those were real entities, real whatever they were. And they use words like machine elves. They'll use words like uh, spirits or, or um, gods or um, interdimensional beings, aliens. Um, there's a lot of different theories on what they, they could be. But 
people that take ayahuasca and DMT, even the atheists don't believe in kind of that materialistic answer to what's going on. And what I would tell a Christian, I'd be like, if you, um, if you believe the eyewitness testimony of people on anything, you have to take into account these people that have no reason to embellish or no reason to suppose that it's a, a religious or a spiritual thing. If you t- just take that into account and you take into account the fact that atheists are seeing this and recognizing that it's real, I think we as Christians who do believe in the spirit world, who do believe in this alternative heavenly dimension or demonic hellish dimension, we do believe in those things. I don't know why we should be so skeptical. And so that would be my, my first opening question is like, there's, if, if the people doing them recognize there's something real, even the atheists, how could you, who has not done it, um, believe that it's not real. And, and then further, um, the, the second question I would have to, um, Christians considering doing this is when you take into account the Bible and, and as I kind of prefaced already, the English translation of the Bible can be a little confusing because it doesn't, it uses the word witchcraft or sorcery instead of the word, uh, shamanism or, um, use of drugs for spiritual purposes. Um, but once you realize that's what the Bible is saying, and I, I spend a lot of time on my book documenting that that's what the Bible's saying. Um, once you realize that, um, my question to Christians would be, why would the Bible so strongly condemn something if it's just a medicine, if it's just something going on in your head? Why is the Bible so insane about it? Um, because the Bible, you know, I, I go through all the different verses, but there's, if you take the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the apostles would have used, and you, you look at the Greek of the Septuagint, um, it has phrases like, do not allow the person that practices pharmakia to live. So that would be, you know, Exodus chapter 22, 18, or Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 says, let no one be found among you that sacrifices his sons or daughter in the fire who practices divinations or sorcery or interprets omens or engages in pharmacos, the use of drugs for spiritual purposes. So, um, you know, my question to a Christian would be, how could you possibly consider doing this when the Bible is so insanely against it? And then the second question is, why is the Bible so insanely against it if it's just a medicine? And my answer is that, that the Graham Hancocks of the world, the Rick Strassmans of the world, the Joe Rogans of the world that claim that there's real stuff going on, I would say they're not wrong. There, there is something real going on. And that's, that makes sense of the insane biblical prohibitions. Yeah, so I teach Old Testament and uh, hermeneutics and some other stuff. One of the things that they're always interested in is, is this subject of the occult, supernatural, things like that. And the point that I try to drive home to them is the Bible never warns us against the occult like a materialist would. That, you know, while I'm sure the Bible knew and could countenance the idea of someone who's really good at reading people and using that to pretend to be a fortune teller, the Bible's prohibitions are all built on you were go- you're going to connect with something that's dangerous and that's defiling. And so that's where yeah. the Bible warns yeah. us away, not not because it's tomfoolery. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, the uh, interesting thing is, is that the Apostle Paul, um, and I, I mentioned this in uh, in my book, is the Apostle Paul um, says exactly that in First Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, and I'm, I'm looking up the verse real quick so I can get the, the uh, language exactly right. But he says, oh, here we go. So First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, he says, 
um, he's talking about sacrificing um, meat to idols and whether you can eat it or not. And he says, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be a participant with demons. So here, this would be a great opportunity for Paul to say they're offered to imaginary stuff. Mm. They're offered to fake gods that aren't real. They're offered to whatever. He doesn't say that. He says they're offered to demons. And so like, here's a, a New Testament affirmation that there, you know, these pagan religions, as you mentioned, are not all, you know, it's not all imaginary. Some of it might be, there certainly is fakery. There certainly is trickery, but not all of it. And there's, there's something real behind at least some of these pagan religions. Yeah, so I guess where I want to go in just a moment is if you could kind of sketch out for our listeners some of the stuff you document in the book about how this connects to what we know about pagan rituals, really in a global sense. Before we do that, though, one of the things that set a hook in my mouth to learn more about this was, again, on Rogan. I don't remember where I heard it, which episode, but he was noting that there were controlled experiments about uh, DMT usage going on where, you know, someone would go into a mind-altered state, and they would initiate a conversation with one of these intelligences. And then they would have a separate group who was kept out of the loop about that previous conversation. That person would go into a DMT state. They'd try to resume that conversation, and sometimes they were very successful in doing that. And so you start hearing like, man, there is some kind of intelligence there who's showing continuity across these different conversations with individual users who are you know, kind of kept discreet from one another. So yeah, that I, that's the other interesting thing that I touch on in um, chapter four of my book is that there's a lot of experiences that take place on psychedelic drugs that can't be explained with materialistic explanations. Um, experiences of people leaving their body, um, having telepathic experiences, being able to um, see things they wouldn't otherwise be able to see, be able to communicate in ways they wouldn't be able to otherwise communicate. So there's spooky things that happen um, that freak people out when they do these. And, and um, the, I, I spend a lot of time trying to ground all this in scientific studies because the scientists, that's the crazy thing. The scientists themselves will do these studies and they'll say, yeah, there's no good explanation for this. Like there's no, there's no, um, you know, the, the, the perceptions of the people at least are, wild and outside of kind of the materialistic understanding of, of the world that we have. Okay. So quick story. When I was preaching through um, the book of Galatians, we got to a vice list at the end and pharmacia is one of the ones that's prohibited. So I preached verse by verse and uh, we, you know, I don't think at the time we were even distributing our sermons, but I got an email out of the blue from a guy who said, Hey, are you preaching on this witchcraft drug use stuff next week? Um, he said, I've got a son who is really wrapped up in this, and I don't know anybody who's talking about this. And I, I think that's because in the previous sermon, somebody had told him I'd kind of previewed what we were talking about the next week. So this guy mm -hmm. reaches out, wants to know, to the best of my knowledge, he did not show up that Sunday, and I never heard from him again. But it made me realize there are people out there who are experiencing this from a, an uninformed position. They're watching a loved one engage with this. So... If uh, if somebody's listening to us right now and they're like, okay, so what should I be thinking about here? Or if I've got a loved one who's doing this, what are what are some of the common features that an ayahuasca DMT trip or a mushroom trip um, 
you know, what are the common features there that you would say this suggests there's some kind of supernatural thing going on or, or even just, hey, here's why they're uniform. Look at how repeatable these things are. Could you help someone listening kind of catch up on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, the wild thing about uh, DMT slash uh, ayahuasca, and again, I keep using those terms somewhat interchangeably because DMT is uh, stands for dimethyltryptamine, and it's the chemical uh, synthesized version of ayahuasca. T- typically, when you do the DMT, it's a it's a much shorter trip than when you do ayahuasca, but they're in essence um, very similar sort of things. Um, and the the experiences people have when on ayahuasca or DMT are amazingly uniform. Um, there, that's the one of the things that got me interested in this is that there's a an amazing overlap between um, the experiences of people in controlled studies being done at Johns Hopkins University and um, shaman in the middle of the rainforest of, of Brazil um, that that do this. Um, there's an overlap between uh, recreational users um, in you know uh, hipster San Francisco and um, you know remote users in some remote tribe in in Asia or whatever. Um, and then furthermore, there's an incredible overlap between the experiences on DMT and the drawings and descriptions um, from religions of times past that use psychedelic drugs um, as they, you know, draw pictures of their gods, for example. So um, like you had mentioned, so one of the crazy things is that everybody sees these entities that even after they come down from their high, they think are real. Um, So that's something that's almost a universal thing. It's like, yeah, I saw a real thing and it's really there. It lives in some other dimension, but he's still there. Even, even after I'm, I'm down from my high, I know that that being is still there. So that's an incredibly universal um, experience that people have when on DMT or ayahuasca. Um, another um, interesting thing is just the descriptions as a whole. Um, in chapter six of my book, um, and here's a, uh, from a Christian standpoint, one of the spookiest things is one of the universal experiences. And, and I want to be careful with the word universal because it is not truly universal in the sense that every single person that does the drug, but it's universal in the sense that it's widely experienced across um, different socioeconomic groups, different points in history. Um, so universal in that sense. Um, one of the universal experiences is the experience of seeing a serpent entity. Um, so um, people take this ayahuasca and they see a serpent entity, um, uh, often in the form of a um, woman that turns into a serpent, often in the form of um, a half woman, half uh, serpent hybrid. Um, but that is a, a very, very common vision. Um, here's a quote from uh, Graham Hancock writing about his own experience on ayahuasca. He says, very commonly, these entities appear as serpents or as serpent human hybrids. Mother Ayahuasca herself is frequently depicted as a serpent. I have met her in this form many times. Um, so that's a pretty shocking thing is that people from all different backgrounds will see this serpent entity. And um, I spend chapter six of my book just going through the history of societies that use psychedelic drugs who also had serpent entity gods. Um, it's it's shockingly common. It just goes goes throughout um, the entire ancient Near East, goes through Northern Europe, goes through uh, all of Mesoamerica, the Aztecs, the Incas, the, the Mayans. 
Um, even North American tribes appear to have had similar uh, similar serpent gods. Um, so that's a, another one of those universal things that people have seen and experienced while on ayahuasca. Um, you had mentioned those machine elves um, and the the drawings that you see of um, Native American Mesoamerican gods. Um, so you'll see kind of a weird shape of a guy with a spear or whatever. Um, that's what people typically describe these machine elves as looking like. Um, and that is another somewhat universal vision of these elves. And when you think of like in Northern Europe, the legend of elves, and to this day in Iceland, they believe in the existence of elves. Um, the, um, that elfish experience appears to be something that's almost universal in um in the experiences of people doing ayahuasca and other psychedelics. So it's, it's these very interesting things. And, and even the geometry, like you had mentioned geometry, um, that sacred spiritual geometry is something that we see almost throughout the world as well with very similar sketches to what people describe as when they take ayahuasca and DMT. And listener, if this is, you know, this is something you're struggling to get your mind around visually, this is so common that if you put DMT machine elves into a search um, and go to the images tab, you're going to find people who are drawing remarkably similar images that are highly geometric in uh, design. You'll see people commenting on them. I mean, this is not hard to find where they're saying that looks exactly like what I saw. That looks like the one I talked to. Um, these things are around, and the point is that it is so reproducible that the internet is filling up with uh, self-validating um, comments on pictures that people have created trying to capture what these creatures look like. Um, it's not just ancient American, Native American cave art. <laughs> this is the stuff that's going up yeah. on Reddit right now. Yes. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. It's a fascinating thing. It's, it's fascinating. It, you know, is, it was fascinating to me before I got my mind around the fact that there was something spiritual going on. Just when I thought it was a natural phenomenon, I was like, what is going on? And then slowly I realized there was something spiritual going on. But um, it is an amazing thing, just even from a, a secular atheist perspective. It's what is going on should cause a lot of people to stop and, and wonder. It seems like the the pace of experience where people are trying this stuff is even outpacing uh, our ability to catalog it. I mean, you've done a remarkable job in your book. Um, I, I mean, no uh, no criticism there. You've done a great job of laying out the the peer reviewed evidence for what's going on here. But it just seems like the the number of people who are opting into this is outpacing even our ability to catalog it in medical research. Um, Yes. Yeah. It's a giant societal experiment that we're doing right now. And, um, it is, it's going on so fast. And, you know, you look at like just yesterday, Elon Musk, who I like, I mean, that's the crazy thing. Some of these guys I like, like I, I mentioned, I kind of like Graham Hancock. I, I don't hate Joe Rogan. I don't hate Elon Musk, but yesterday Elon Musk quoted, quoted, uh, or tweeted at someone about the benefits of psychedelics versus other, some other, um, more medicinal type of drugs. So it's interesting that um, there's just this cultural push and you're right, it's happening so fast. It's very hard to understand it, to catalog it and to counter it. It's, it's just, there's a, uh, a behemoth, a, a juggernaut of, of societal force going on right now. Um, that is a big problem. Now um, I don't know if you want to get into it, but you had mentioned at the beginning 
um, my my tweet that abortion and uh, psychedelics went together. And that's a big part of, you know, if, if anybody listening is kind of saying, well, what's this guy freaking out about? You know, like, why is it such a problem? Um, that's a big part of why I do believe it's a problem is that if we take it as and, and we say, OK, let's let's say that Lewis Unget has made the case. And I believe or Graham Hancock or anybody else that believes these entities are real. Let's say let's say I'm going to take that case as being made, that these are real entities that we interact with. And then let's take the second part of that, which is kind of the biblical argument I made that these are not good entities. These are demonic, bad spirits, bad entities that we're interacting with. So let's take those two pieces. And now let's step back and say, okay, what do you do when you take a whole society and you cause all of them to regularly interact with demons, regularly Mm -hmm. interact with bad spirits? Um, in some profound way, you know, the, a lot of the people that take mushrooms, for example, they'll say that that was the most profound experience of their life. Like there's studies that will have them say that ranked up there with the death of my parents in terms of importance in my life. Um, and, you know, like a majority of people will say that's the most important experience of my life. Very, very crazy. What do you do when you have a whole society that's doing that? And it's, it's not just a brain function. They're interacting with real entities that are not good. Um, what effects does that have? And this, that's one of the things I spend a lot of time on in the book is looking at the effects of drugs being used for spiritual purposes on societies, ancient societies, and what they did. And one of the things that these entities start to ask for over and over and over again, it's, it happens constantly. Um, there's a book called uh, by Leslie Wilson called um, the serpent symbol in the ancient Near East, where he catalogs all the serpent religions in the the region that the Bible was written. And he, he details how the serpent entity over and over again would ask for human sacrifice. And so all of those religions, as we read like the Old Testament, where it talks about the high places, and it talks about, you know, you must destroy the high places, different kings get in trouble because they didn't destroy the high places. Um, those are almost certainly places where they were doing human sacrifice. They were places of worship where they go and worship the, the serpent entity and they would, um, they would commit human sacrifice. And even one of the, the passages, I think Deuteronomy chapter 18, 10, that I had just quoted, it starts off with, do not sacrifice your children in the fire or practice pharmacia, right? Mm-hmm. And those two things go together in the Bible and they certainly go together throughout history where we see it over and over and over again. Um, and you go to Mesoamerica and where they discovered ayahuasca, that's where we get ayahuasca from. Um, when uh, Graham Hancock was actually on Joe Rogan this week, and they were talking about the fact that they thought all politicians should do ayahuasca, that the world would be a better place if they did. And I screamed at the computer. I'm like, they, we have done that before. And it's called ancient Inca society <laughs> and right. they sacrificed people at an industrial rate. They were anything but enlightened. The, the, and to, to get back to my point, if you have people constantly interacting with and being possessed by demonic forces, thanks to drugs that put them in contact with those demonic forces, you're going to get a brutal society that's moving towards evil stuff. And um, just, and the devil is a good liar, right? So mm-hmm. people will take these drugs and they'll say, Hey, um, it's making me a better person. It's making me love everybody. You know, Joe Rogan says, oh, I, of course, why would I sacrifice anybody? I, like these drugs make me nicer. They make me understand people. But people have to remember, like when the devil tempted Eve 
in the, the garden, the devil sounds reasonable. He's like, Hey, try some new stuff, you know, like try and just give it a test, you know, try it. It'll open up your mind or help you. It sounds wise. It sounds sensible. It sounds reasonable. He, the devil kind of makes it sound like God's the unreasonable one in that story, right? Like if you read what the devil says, he sounds reasonable. And the same with the devil tempting Jesus. When Jesus went out to the desert in Luke chapter four, it sounds like the devil's the reasonable one. He's like, hey, he's you know, quoting scripture. He's offering him solutions. He, he seems like a reasonable guy. And that's what you know, people need to realize. It's just because you start to take these psychedelics and your initial experiences are good or your initial experiences seem reasonable does not mean that's where it's going, right? The, the all sin starts off looking beautiful, right? Like adultery starts off looking beautiful. It's only six months later that you destroy your family and your wife tries to murder you or, or vice versa or whatever. Like it, it's sin always starts off beautiful. And I, I say that with these psychedelics, it's like, sure. Yeah. At the beginning, it probably seems nice. Um, but you look at where it goes with societies and it doesn't go to a good place. And the Incas are a good example of that where they were uh, sacrificing an industrial rate. The Aztecs used magic mushrooms regularly and they sacrificed 250,000 people every year. You know, so this doesn't take us to a good place. And it's, it's, you know, people need to realize the implications of what's going on in society right now, if we're as a society, we're saying, Hey, this is okay. We should all do this. And if my premise is right, if this case is right, and frankly, if Graham Hancock's right, if even proponents of these drugs are right, and we're really interacting with entities, there's, there's a potential catastrophic future in front of us. And that's why for me, I'm just, I feel like the guy like screaming into the wind of like, Hey guys, please let's, think about this before we jump into it, you know? And unfortunately, as we've talked about, there's cultural forces right now that are just going down this road at full speed. Well, listener, if, if all this sounds dramatic to you, I think a, a good way to get your feet into this is go look at the old, um, I say old, it's an early 2000s movie. I think Mel Gibson directed it called Apocalypto. And it begins with a sort of Aztec style ziggurat. They're sacrificing humans up top. There's just human heads bouncing down the sides of these things, rivers of blood running down the side. Um, Lewis has a point here, and you start thinking, well, it's a slippery slope. Well, the slippery slope you need to be thinking about is the trail of blood running down the side of a pagan uh, you know, tower or a pagan uh, pyramid where humans are being sacrificed to these gods who demand it. Um, yeah. Lewis, the two things, I guess, you've been super generous with your time. I don't want to keep you here forever, but two things that I think Christian listeners may be interested in. The first is, you called this the return of the dragon. Dragon is a loaded term for Christians in uh, the way we think of the supernatural world. Could you help us think through how this connects to the to the record of the Bible? And then sure. the, the second thing is you're talking about spiritual dangers. Yes, human sacrifice. Yes, abortion, um, you know, increased levels of violence. But because of the, I think I'm saying this right, the, the pineal gland, I also think that what we're going to end up seeing is people who are on a on a on a super highway to demon uh, oppression and even possession because they're playing with these things yeah. through chemicals that the body may be designed in some ways to interact with the supernatural through. So, could we maybe finish yeah. on those two notes? One, how does this connect to the story of the Bible? And then number two, um, how does this connect to human physiology and its uh, relationship to the supernatural? Yeah. Real quick, let me wrap up that last thing and just say a lot of people. So you, I, I mentioned abortion. And I mentioned this. Um, 
a lot of people don't realize that the founder of Planned Parenthood, her name was Margaret Sanger. Um, and you know, if people don't know, Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the United States. Um, the founder, Margaret Sanger, mapped out how to start Planned Parenthood with her mentor and her lover, which was na- his name was Havelock Ellis. He was an English physician. Um, Havelock Ellis was a pioneer in the psychedelic movement. He experimented with psychedelics. He did psychedelics. He practiced psychedelics. He practiced the occult. So the, the foundation of abortion in America was done through the consultation of psychedelics. Hmm. So, you know, the, 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 there, there's some correlation with the rise of the drug movement and the, and the abortion industry, but there's also hard evidence that that's how it started in America. So I, I just wanted to add, tag that on to the end as, as we think about um, these demonic forces asking for blood and um, the fact that they already have in America. And they, you know, you look at 50 million abortions over the last 50 years. Um, that's, that is in large part, thanks to the work of Havelock Ellis in consultation with psychedelics. So anyway, let me get back to what you had asked. So your question was um, the dragon in scripture. Um, so um, I use throughout the book, I use the, the phrase dragon and serpent interchangeably. Um, they're um, the, role of the serpent in scripture goes, you know, we all know the beginning of the Bible where the serpent approaches Eve, um, but it doesn't stop there. Um, the, the, the serpent is present um, throughout uh, scripture. Um, and, uh, but it, it's worth starting with that conversation with Eve because that serpent um, approaches Eve and he offers special knowledge to her. He says, you can have the knowledge of good and evil. You can be like a God. All you have to do is consume this thing. And I'm, I make a point in my book. I'm not saying that the, the fruit was a psychedelic, although who knows, it may have been. But I, I am saying that there's, there's the same promise that you get on Joe Rogan or you get on Graham, from Graham Hancock is that you consume this thing and it gives you special knowledge and it will open up your mind. And yet God has commanded us not to do it. So that's, it's crazy that that same temptation comes. And then the second part that's crazy is that when people take at least some psychedelics, they see serpent entities, just like Eve was interacting with uh, serpent entities. So there's this creepy parallel between what's going on with the psychedelic movement and what we see at the very beginning of the fall of humanity um, with Eve. Um, but then what I mentioned is just that the serpent is then present throughout scripture um, the, as kind of this negative force um, throughout, the, throughout the Bible. Um, the, I've got a whole chapter where I talk about what Christianity says about it. Um, but think of, for example, Moses, um, when he was given the power over the, um, magicians of the Egyptians. Um, so he goes to Egypt and God gives him the staff and he tells him to throw his staff down. If you remember, they had a battle of serpents Mm. and the crazy thing, those magicians, their, um, name, if you read in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so what the apostles would have read, um, their name was that they were sorcerers, and it was a, a, um, a, a conjugation of the word pharmakai. So they were um, practicers of pharmakai, um, was what they were, and there's this battle of the serpents that takes place um, between kind of the God of Israel that Moses uh, represented and the gods of them that were these, these snakes. 
um, you see these snakes um, given as examples throughout um, the Old Testament of evil that takes place. Um, you see when um, when uh, the um, in the in the New Testament, you see as you go to like the the end of time, and if um, if you read from the Book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that at the end of time, the serpent will come to devour us once again. And so there's like this end time promise that, you know, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, where the serpent keeps popping its head up over and over again um, and showing itself to be um, the, in opposition to mankind. Um, so it is this, this crazy and interesting uh, theme that just keeps popping up in the Bible of, um, of a serpent entity um, that works as this, this opponent. Um, going back to the, the story of the this, uh, of Genesis in Genesis three fifteen um, is often referred to as the uh, proto evangel, kind of the first time the the gospel is said. But it says that the serpent will bite the heel of humanity. Um, and um, let me just pull that verse up real quick, and I'll read it. Um, it says, "And I will put enmity between you," and he's talking to the serpent, "you and the woman." And between your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Um, so there's like this ongoing battle that will take place between humanity and the serpent, and it just it, it's a constant theme um, going through from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. That's great. I appreciate that, listener. You're you know if you're listening to this podcast, you're already interested in this stuff. You need to get uh, you need to get Lewis's book. So Lewis, the last one there was just the human uh, physiology feature that maybe we're designed to interact with the supernatural in some ways. And these drugs are um, counterfeiting or perverting that ability. Um, again, my, yes. my concern yep. here is an uptick in demon possession uh, along with, right. you know, destroying humans and, and murdering humans. This is another spiritual concern I have. So could you sketch that out for our listeners? And I, I promise I won't yeah. keep you on here all day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, it's interesting that you don't need psychedelic drugs to experience spiritual things. Christians have experienced spiritual things. Buddhists experience spiritual things. Hindus experience spiritual things. Uh, Islam, uh, New Age people, you know, Wiccans, etc. People experience spiritual things um, all the time. And you don't need psychedelic drugs to do that. Um, there are interesting studies of people that do shamanic drumming, for example, that experience spiritual things, uh, uh, rhythmic dancing. They have very similar experiences to what people have on psychedelics. Um, so there's a, a variety of different ways that you can experience spiritual things. Um, and as you mentioned, the pineal gland, um, that's from, there's an, a, a theory, an idea that we have a, a small amount of DMT in our brains that allows us to experience spiritual things. Um, and so God has made it so it's possible for us to experience spiritual things. Now, what we kind of talked about earlier is God gave legal ways, licit ways for us to experience spiritual things. And then he gave illicit ways, illegal ways for us to experience spiritual things. And um, legal ways would be, for example, fasting. Um, it would be praying to God. It'd be reading scripture and then reflecting upon that. Um, it would be um, just remembering God at a happy moment and giving thanks to God. All those are ways that often we have spiritual moments and they bring tears to our eyes and we remember those things and, and there's a spiritual experience. And you look at kind of in the history of the Bible, you'll see people that have 
visions that kind of look like almost psychedelic experiences where they'll see heavenly geometry and they'll, you know, you read the prophets, for example, from the Old Testament, they talk about the size and the shape of all the heavenly city. And so they'll have these spiritual experiences, but they're legal experiences, they're licit experiences. And so, you know, when you think about the entities that God would bring us into contact with, if we're having a legal and licit experience of the spiritual, um, that would be a good, the good things. Um, but then God also says, you can also have other spiritual experiences, right? He, he created a garden that had the illegal fruit and it had the illicit fruit. He created a world that has magic mushrooms and he created a world that allowed people to go astray and follow false religions and have spiritual experiences through those. Um, so you can have those illicit experiences um, and those spiritual experiences that you can go through and yet they can open the door to spirits that aren't at all aligned with God that um, are, are very opposed to God. And you had mentioned uh, demon possession. And one of the crazy things that I've seen over and over again, because in prepping for this book, I just read account after account of people that had done psychedelics, DMT, ayahuasca, LSD, uh, mushrooms, et cetera. And I I'd studied account after account, and it is amazing, shocking how many times they say that those entities possessed them in some way either during the trip itself or even after the trip, that they're possessed in some way. That's language they use. These are non-religious people who think the entities are good or don't think the entities are bad, and they're still using that possession language. And you read that in light of everything we've talked so far, talked about so far, and it is, it's a terrifying thing to see that keeps popping up of these entities possessing the people that are taking this psychedelic drugs. Yeah, that's really, really quite chilling. And, and as people who are called to love God and love our neighbor, uh, I really do think that this is something we can't afford to to treat as, uh, you know, some kind of niche thing that's going to burn itself out. This appears to have real legs and is already catching up people into it. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I touch on is like, as Christians, we worry about the LGBT movement and how it went from you know, hey, we shouldn't illegalize homosexuality to, hey, we should allow them to be married to, hey, now we've got like drag queens in schools with giving, you know, strip teases to kids or whatever. Like just how did that happen? And you look at uh, public uh, polls of like, hey, it went from everyone was against it, you know, 20 years ago to everyone's for it now. Right. And you say, well, how did how did that happen so fast? And we're all worried that, hey, that's going to have negative consequences on society, which I think it is. But one thing I try and point out to people is that we are seeing the same shift in opinion on psychedelic drugs, and it's happening in parallel with that. And I'm not saying there's a causal factor, although there might be behind that. But the the point that I'm pointing out is we're seeing the same seismic shift in attitudes towards this, and this might have more societal effects than the LGBT. This might have more consequential impacts than the LGBT. Because this is actually opening us up to influences that are darker and more wicked, if possible. And that that's, people don't realize that, but that's something people ha- should realize and they should recognize. And if anything, it should raise as much or more alarm bells. And and I think Christians are kind of on the LGBT thing where they're kind of you know, raising the alarm about that. And you see a lot of complaints about that online, but people aren't raising the alarm about what we're talking about. And I, like I said, I think it could be more consequential in the long term to the existence of Christian society, of, of Western civilization as we know it, could be more destroyed by this. 
For sure. I mean, you're also thinking about entities that are more ancient. They've been at it longer, and they've uh, they've yeah. got game plans. I, one of the threads I'm pulling, I'm not sure uh, if this is on your radar or what you might have done with it, but you know, you're talking about universal experience. Well, a lot of different religions with competing claims recognize a demon named Lilith, and Lilith is often associated uh, with uh, you know the death of children. If you have an unwanted pregnancy, you would ask Lilith to intervene on your behalf. And so, uh, when people are running into uh, you know abortion clinics after they participate in psychedelics, you've got to think that there may be a Lilith out there somewhere who's put a new Planned Parenthood clinic face on a very old, uh, deeply disturbing, deeply wicked appetite for human blood. And so you you start thinking about these things and, and connecting them to dots and ancient pagan practices and contemporary practices, and you see really quickly how credible your idea that this may be even more bad, this may be even worse than the things we're already kind of raising the alarm about. Yeah, it's yeah. very credible. Yep. Yep. All right. And well, it's flying under the radar, unfortunately. And, and my hope, and I appreciate you having me on, is just to get it above the radar, let people see what's going on, and hopefully um, other people will start standing up and raising the alarm. Yeah, man, I, I'm praying for God's blessing on your book that it would do just that. Um, so the book is The Return of the Dragon, the surprising, excuse me, the shocking way drugs and religion shape people in societies. You're also on Twitter. It's I am uh, Lewis U. It's at I am Lewis U and Lewis there with L-E-W-I-S spelling. Uh, and you've also got a substack. So what are you doing with the substack? So uh, the substack is Lewis Ungit. So it's like you said, Lewis is spelled L-E-W-I-S and last name is U-N-G-I-T um, and it's dot substack.com. And um, substack, I just, I'm, I'm a writer, right? So I'm constantly posting um, information on upcoming books, additional information on this particular subject. Um, I'm. It's one of the ways I kind of work through creatively um, new ideas that I'm, I'm working on, get feedback from, from followers and uh, kind of post upcoming chapters and that kind of stuff for future books. So it's a great way to stay in contact with me. And if anybody has questions or comments, or I should also offer uh, this, free to everybody is like, if, if anybody's listening to this and I had somebody the other day that was like, Hey, I'll buy your book after payday comes, you know, and I, you know, my book, I, I priced as cheap as I could on, on Amazon and people are welcome to check it out on Amazon. But if you can't afford it, if you're, I know inflation's crazy right now. If you can't afford it, it's only like 10 bucks for the paperback and five bucks for the audio version of this. Um, but if you can't afford that, please message me through Substack and I will give you a free copy um, no problem. Um, I just, I, I'm not trying to get rich off this. I'm trying to get the word out. That's the whole purpose here. So you can connect with me via Substack for sure. Okay, man, that that's awesome. And again, I just pray for God's blessing on your, your endeavor here. And it, you know, wouldn't hurt my feelings if you got rich doing it either, but I, I really do think <laughs> you're right that there is a, an under the radar threat here that is pretty big. It's like an, it's like an iceberg. A lot of it's underwater still, but it's a huge threat. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Lewis. Well, uh, listener, I will have links to all that stuff we just kind of breezed through right there so you can follow up with him, all the different places he's at. Get the book and uh, spread it around. Find somebody to pass it to and say, hey, read this and can we get coffee and talk about it? We we need more eyes on this. Lewis, thank you for your work, brother. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And man, God bless you. Let's just uh, let's just see what God does with your work and how he helps people out. Hey, thanks so much, Jeff. Appreciate you having me on. Okay, y'all, 
Thanks again for listening. I trust that was as interesting for you as it was for me. And I really do hope you'll reach out to someone, ask them to listen as well, then get a cup of coffee with them to talk it over. There are links to all of Lewis's stuff in the show notes. I hope you'll think long and hard about buying a copy of his book and passing it around in your circles. If you're hearing this on the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast feed, then please consider giving the Servants and Heralds podcast a subscription. If you're listening on Servants and Heralds, please consider subscribing to Pop Culture Quorum Deo. I'll put links to both in the show notes too. I'll leave on the Pop Culture Quorum Deo sign-off. Remember to live every moment as if you are before the face of God. Because you are. Talk to you next time.